And we'll continue worshiping together by using our Bibles and turning to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15. If you're visiting with us, you'll find that in the blue Bible provided in the pew pocket in front of you on page 961. And as you're turning there, just a word to our church family and those of you who are able to be with us on Friday night. It was a joy to enjoy the Good Friday service uh, together. Uh, I'm glad that many of you uh, benefited from that time. I certainly did as well. Uh, I'll tell you somebody who did not, though, and that was my four-year-old daughter. She told me at bedtime, laying at the top of her little bunk bed, I asked her, because she was sitting in the service, I said, um, sweetie, what was the lesson about? Because she doesn't ever get to hear me preach. I wanted to know if she would actually pick up on it. Well, as to be expected, she said, God. I was like, all right. (laughs) I was hoping for Jesus, but God works. But she seemed kind of frustrated. And so I asked her what was wrong. She said, I listened to the lesson and I didn't get any snacks. (laughs) She was upset that the communion stuff came by at the end, and she thought that those were the snacks for listening. So, we all come for different reasons. (laughs) And that being said, I recognize that many of you are here for different reasons today. So many of you faithful attenders here at Faith Bible Church, so glad to see you. But also special guests among us, uh, maybe here for a variety of reasons. Uh, For some, this could be a tradition for you. You just always have come to church on Easter And we're glad to be a part of that tradition today. Glad that you're with us. For some, it may be a curiosity thing. Maybe you you know other Christians who make a big deal out of this day, and so you wanted to come and see what this was really all about. So glad that that you're here as well. Maybe some of you are here just to get a family member off your back. (laughs) They've been bothering you all year long, and they promised you lunch afterward if you would come. Look, There's the whole spectrum of reasons uh, to be here today. And I want to serve you well, no matter who you are, regular attender, church member, all the way to visitor, or the person that's just ready for lunch. (laughs) I want to serve you well. But to help you do that, I I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in my position. If you were me today, and you have just a few moments to share what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? I see two outcomes here. Two goals. One of the options could be that it would be my goal to impress you. Uh, By that I mean you're not here that often. We've got a big crowd. So let me try to impress you with my amazing personality or lack thereof or with our music, or with our programs, or whatever. Because you're here, and I want you to come back. Or, I could just shoot for something a little more humble. And that is to not worry about impressing you, but just to inform you. Like realizing, like if this were the only time I ever have an opportunity to speak to you, this is what I would say. I'm going with the latter. I want to inform you. I have prepared today, thinking totally about a narrow window of time, a limited opportunity, and giving you the absolute essentials of the Christian faith, as if you would never hear it again. Now, to do that is a challenge because this is a big Bible. There's a lot of books in here. There's a lot of chapters. So the question is, how are we going to go about that? Well, I'm taking one straight from the playbook of the United States Navy. Circa 1960, they adopted this acronym that's made its way around the world, KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) That's a hard thing to do. I want to keep it simple. I want to give you the basics today. 
And there's no better place for us to get the basics than right here in 1 Corinthians. Now, the KISS acronym is so helpful because this is what the engineers were thinking when they developed that. If you have to repair a plane in the middle of a war, you don't need it to be complicated. You need a rather simple solution. You need basic tools to be able to fix anything at any time. And so also today, I would say that all of us have been engineered or designed in certain ways that the solution is simple. I'm not saying the solution to our problems are easy. I've just said it's simple. God has designed us a certain way, and there was a certain way that things break down, and there's a certain way that things are fixed. And even here today, we all come into this place, visitor or church member are like broken in some way. Uh, the plane, if you will, has been messed up. Uh, it is in need of repair. Not only could it run more optimally, but we also understand that one day, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we tune it up, it's all going to go down. We've got a problem. It needs a solution. The biblical solution, in a word, is called gospel, good news. That's what Paul was so concerned about in this letter. It's a really fascinating letter. For those of you who have visited around different churches before, you can need to imagine this particular church. It is a problematic place. I mean, it's got all kinds of problems. We've got sexual issues going on in the church, people fighting one another, people suing one another. And Paul basically writes this letter in response to these new Christians who are having all these problems to help them out. Uh, you, you notice, like, as you're reading through it, that he keeps addressing their concerns. They were concerned about an issue, and he'll say, now concerning this, and now concerning that. And so he's just responding to all of their questions. He's, he's fielding the issues. But something interesting happens in chapter 15, verse 1. Just look at the first few words. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. For the entire letter, he has let them address their issues, and he has given answers to what they thought were important. It is at this point that Paul says, all right, now I'm not going to talk to you about the stuff that you're concerned about. Now let me talk to you about the stuff that I'm concerned about, the stuff that I think if you got right would fix everything else. And he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. That's why I say that's the strategy. He knows that there is a simple solution to the problems that these people are experiencing. And it's the simple solution for, for you, at least the biblical solution, to, to whatever may be going on down at its root, down at the core, it is a gospel issue. And what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11 is the essential gospel. Now, I want to share it with you in its simplest way so that you would receive it, so that you would rejoice in it. But for us to do that, we need to understand it. And Paul basically lays out the gospel under three headings. He, he shows us what it does. You need to know that. Like, what does this thing do for you? What does the gospel do? What it is, all right, what are its contents, what's in it? And then finally, why can it be believed? Why should it be believed? Let's look at what it does. Look at verses 1 and 2, if you're following along in the Bible there. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, do you notice here how Paul basically puts all of his eggs in one basket? Pardon the Easter pun, I didn't mean it. He's saying that this message, he hasn't described what the message is yet, but he's saying that this message is extremely important. The gospel that he preached to them, actually the, the term gospel and the term preached share the same root. Uh, it, it, it is an official metaphor of imperial times. A, a gospeler, a gospel, was the official proclamation of good news from the empire. It was uh, like the modern-day press secretary. 
This was someone who was officially charged with the responsibility of representing uh, the king's concerns and victories to the people. Paul says, I preach the gospel to you. I, I am giving you the official proclamation of the ruler on high. And it has had an impact in you, a significant impact. He says it's done two things. First, he says that they received it, and because of that, it is the gospel on which they stand. That's what the text says. They stand on it. The gospel provides them with stability, with firmness. It, it grounds them in some way. Now, that's a question for us all. It's a longing for us all. Every one of us, when we experience the trials of life, when everything hits the fan, when our world falls apart, we have these sayings that we use and we kind of fill in the blank. What do you say when it all goes bad? At least, I'm glad that Those are those indicators of our firmness, the, the, the thing that even though everything else goes wrong, we know that it's going to be okay as long as whatever it is is all right. So we say at least the bank account's okay, or at least the kids were okay, or at least I still have my physical health, or at least we still have the house. I don't know how you fill in the blanks, but we all fill in the blanks some way. Paul says that for the believers at Corinth, the way that they would fill in the blank would be at least the gospel. Now, he hasn't said yet what this gospel is. But whatever it is, this is what I want you to catch, it provides some stability for these people. It is the thing that they come back to when everything goes bad wrong. And it not only provides them with stability, but it also provides them with salvation. Look at the text again, because he says that you received it, in which you stand, and, verse 2, by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. Salvation, that language that we see all throughout the Bible, presumes that you're being saved from something. Now, I do need to kind of catch you up on some of the background here because uh, we often think that we need to be saved from climate change or saved from uh, corrupt politics or saved from income inequality. What the Bible assumes we need to be saved from is essentially threefold. Uh, sin, God's wrath or judgment, and death. Or some combination of the three. That, that's what the Bible says the problem is. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but I, I want you just to understand here what, what he's offering is a salvation from these three things. Now, if you're here today and you're kind of skeptical, you, you may not buy into sin. Maybe you think you're a pretty good person, and maybe you think that God is not angry at you because of any sin, because you're much better than other people. Look, even if you don't buy into the first, biblical, first two of the biblical problems, you'll at least understand the third one, and that is death. My simple question for you, though, if you object to the first two, is why would you object to the first two if you're afraid of the last one? Why is it that we were all born with this innate fear and dread of the end? I would submit to you, friends, it is because the law of God has been written on your heart and you know you don't live up to it. And you expect one day that there will ultimately be a judgment and that is why you do everything you possibly can to extend your physical life. You will spend every dime you have, you will exert every bit of energy that you have to prolong this physical existence because you dread what will happen on the other side. If you don't think that there's really sin, and you don't think that God's really angry against those who sin against him, why don't people just say, well, let's bring on the end? But we don't say that. 
we all know deep down inside that the biblical answer about the problem is right. It is salvation from sin. But what's fascinating to me, especially for those of you who come to Faith Bible Church on a regular basis, do you notice here that he doesn't say it is the gospel by which you are saved or have been saved. He said it is the gospel by which you are being saved. It's present tense. We so often think of salvation as something that only happened in the past, but biblically speaking, salvation goes beyond a past tense event and extends into the present, and it also gives us hope for the future. There's a sense in which we have been saved from sin's penalty, we are being saved from sin's power, and we one day will be saved from sin's presence. Paul here knows exactly what he's doing. He didn't just mix up his verb tenses. He intentionally wanted the Corinthians to believe and remember that the salvation that they enjoy is contingent upon their present, ongoing, present tense, ongoing belief in this gospel. This is why he will add these little words at the end, and they're kind of scary if you don't interpret them right. Notice, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Wow. There is a possibility then that someone could actually believe in vain? And what is that? How is it that anyone would ever believe in vain? It is if they stop clinging to, holding on to this particular message that he's about to announce. We haven't got to it yet. But if they let this thing go, They have not been saved. They will endure God's righteous wrath, evidencing, by the way, that they were never truly saved to begin with. Salvation is a present tense phenomenon insofar as the faith must be ongoing. You say, Justin, uh, what does this matter? Listen, it matters especially for those of you who frequent church only on Easter and Christmas. Because there's a tendency in all of us to look back to some experience of faith and say, oh, I remember that time that I prayed and I believed in Jesus. Or some uh, look forward. They look ahead. They say, I know one day I'm actually going to nail it down and I will then believe and trust in Jesus. And yet Paul says here that salvation is only for those who are right now believing in Jesus for rescue. Yeah, I grew up in a day in which things weren't as safe as they are now. What I mean by that is that the government wasn't as involved with things like parks and that type of stuff, and they just weren't concerned about kids' safety as much. I mean, we had merry-go-rounds, for example, that you could, I mean, big, heavy metal merry-go-rounds that you could get thrown off of and break your arm. We had seesaws, you know, like where if you, for some reason, put your fingers down, like behind it, you would smash your fingers and break them. I mean, if you compare the playground of the 1990s to the one of the 2010s, it looks like a death trap. And this extended to larger parks as well. My family took a vacation when I was probably nine or ten years old to Chimney Rock in North Carolina. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a mountainous park. It's where they filmed Last of the Mohicans. And it abounds with just beautiful rocks that you can climb and trails that you can navigate. And I still remember to this day the trail on which we walked was nothing, I'm not kidding, it was nothing but a 2 by 10 board that was about 15 to 20 feet from a massive drop-off. So you had like board, and then you had a hillside, and then plunge to your death. (laughs) Not only that, but on the particular day that we were walking these trails, it had just rained. And so a slippery 2 by 10, and then a 9-year-old who's just excited about being at the place where they filmed The Last of the Mohicans running around, and I slipped off that board, slid down the hill, and grabbed onto a root on the way down, thereby avoiding plummeting to my death. Now, I do not want to make this sound more dramatic than it was. This isn't Sylvester Stallone cliffhanger kind of thing, like me at the edge of the cliff. 
This was me a few feet down from the board holding on to this root and my dad quickly getting me. But you understand salvation in that term, right? There's rescue because of what I'm holding on to. It's not something that I would eventually hold on to. It's not something that I'm glad at some point in the past I held on to. It is my rescue, therefore I stay connected to it. And so also, Paul here says, whatever this message is that I'm about to tell you, it is your rescue. And it is something that you, and the term that he uses is cling to. It is something that you are holding on to. And so I am telling us right now, from the very beginning, we need to know what this message, what this gospel will do for you. It will stabilize you and it will save you as long as you are clinging to it and it alone. What is it that people cling to for salvation? Some cling to their own works. They think they're a good person. Some cling to the rituals of the church. Some cling to a church itself saying that they belong to a particular church and that that is the hope on which they will be saved. Some cling, rightfully, to a message. But here's the question, though. If you do cling to a message this morning, may I ask you, of what does that message consist? What message is it that you are clinging to? That's where Paul will continue. He will show us not only what the gospel does, but he'll show us what the gospel is. He doesn't just give us the the consequences or the outcomes of the gospel. He'll give us the contents of gospel in verses 3 and 4. Let's see the essentials, the the sine qua non of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, friends, this is the Gospel. I love Paul's term. He says, just like before he gives you the contents, he discloses its priority. He says, I want you to remember, as you're enduring all these problems, you need to remember what I delivered to you as of first importance. The English word priority. I've shared this with many of our church members before, but it bears repeating that priority traditionally means first thing. You're like, all right, duh, I get that. I don't think you do. Most Americans really struggle with this word. When the word first came out and people started using it around the 16th and 17th century, the only form of the word that you would have found in a dictionary was singular, priority. And then around the time of the Industrial Revolution, moving into the modern era, as technology tended to give man this impression that he could do more than he actually could, guess what? All of a sudden, people took a singular word, priority, and started using it as a plural, talking of priorities. You do the same thing, don't you? What are our priorities here, you tell the family, you tell your business. What are our first things? Friends, there's not multiple first things. (laughs) What Paul is saying here, I think this is good for us, especially those of you who attend this church on a regular basis, some things are more important than others. Some things are of first importance. Some things are priority. Some things are underlined and in bold and highlighted because attention needs to be drawn to this first. And Paul says, what I'm about to tell you is priority. This is at the top of the list. All right, what is it? What are the contents then? What is priority in the mind of Paul? It is first of all a person. It is a person. The first words out of Paul's official declaration are, Christ died. Christ. Christ. You want to know the gospel? It begins with Christ. Now, by this point in Christian history, it's probably A.D. 51 to 55, somewhere in there, the name or the title, excuse me, Christ, wasn't just another name for Jesus. 
I know we often think in our American kind of background that, oh, Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name, it just kind of all goes together. It doesn't work that way. Christ is actually his title. And by this point, any time you see Christ being used in the New Testament, it is being used to affirm his deity. There's a whole lot in that one little word. It is unpacking the fact that he was the Son of God who came in human form to rescue and rule the world on behalf of the Father. Actually, buried in that one little term, properly understood, is the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Because it assumes that the Son of God has been sent from the Father and empowered by the Spirit. We're saying a lot when we say Christ. I'm not just talking about a good human teacher. I am talking about Christ, the Son of God. The gospel begins there with Him. Christ did what? He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It's not just about the person of Christ, but it's about the work of Christ. The gospel is about the person and the work of Christ. Well, what was His work? What did He come to do? Well, he came to die. We talked about that a little bit on Friday night for those of you who were here. But since two-thirds of you were not, let me briefly review. (laughs) Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures told us. Here's the brief version of the story. Mankind was created to rule under God, and everything was great. He was going to enjoy life eternal, but the problem came in when mankind, our first parents, our earthly representatives, actually rebelled against God to do their own thing, and when they decided to be king themselves, there was a penalty for that. God warned them about it ahead of time, but they rebelled and did it anyway, and so they brought death on all mankind because all would ultimately follow in their parents' footsteps and rebel against God and His rule. So that put us in a bad spot. The penalty for treason against the high king of the universe is death. And God would throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament, show promise that there would be someone who would pay this penalty for them or something. Uh, they were, that's why they were doing those sacrifices all the time, because God had given them that as a preview, if you would, of one who would ultimately come and finally satisfy this penalty. And so, in accordance with the Scriptures, that one finally did come. The one spoken of in Isaiah 53, who would suffer for the sins of his people. He came, and he died, and thereby endured God's righteous wrath for our Because Christ didn't come just to relieve poverty. He didn't come just to make our lives better. He didn't come to give us our best life. He came to remedy Sin. Sin's the problem. If you want to understand the gospel correctly, in this little creed is Christ died for our sins. You have to actually acknowledge that you have in some way sinned against God or there is no salvation for you. And so Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And not only that, but it says He was buried. We often forget this one, but the point of the burial, the reason why that's included, is because it makes official that a real flesh and blood body died. You don't bury a spirit. He actually came down off a cross. They handled his physical bleeding body. They wrapped it up. They put it in a tomb. It was buried, and other people could see that he was in physically that place. But that's not all. The Scriptures will go on to say that he died and thereby satisfied the penalty for God's wrath, but the proof that it was satisfied was that he rose again. That's what we've been singing about all morning. He actually overcame death. This week, just in meditating on the Scriptures for my own personal worship, I came across this text in Acts 2, and I just had to share it with you. This is so beautiful. Peter's preaching here, and he says to the Jews that he's preaching to, This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then notice verse 24. This is awesome. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isn't that awesome? It was not possible for Christ to be held down by this. He satisfied that, that penalty. He fully paid it as evidenced by the fact that God's wrath no longer had to abide. The penalty had been fully satisfied. Now he could come back to life showing that all who will follow him in faith can also enjoy that same destiny. He was risen again. And note, in accordance with the Scriptures. It's the authority of the Word. I mean, from the Old Testament Scriptures is what it's pointing to. That book that Muslims and Jews both hold as divine revelation predicted that Christ Himself would overcome death and rise again in three days. Now, if you want the more in-depth explanation, by the way, of why it is three days in the Old Testament, that is about a one-hour conversation that I don't have time to do this morning. But I will say that on the basis of the Abraham narrative where he promises that he will return again with his son Isaac even after sacrificing him, and then also on the basis of Psalm 16, and also on the basis of Daniel chapter 12, and also on the basis of Hosea chapter 6, there was a concrete hope of the resurrection in the Old Testament, and just somebody would need to be the first person to walk through that door. And that somebody was Jesus himself. These are the essential contents of the gospel. Now, I like the word essential because it doesn't just mean important. It means if you don't have these things, you don't have the gospel. Look, I'm giving you the basics today. I'm not trying to, like, upsell you. This is the basic gospel package, if you will. This is everything that you need to know. If I take away any of this, I no longer have the gospel. Essential means if you change it or take it away, it ceases to be what it was. For example, triangles. What's essential for a triangle? Three sides, three equal sides. If I round off one of those sides, I no longer have a triangle. You got that? If I modify any of that essential message, I no longer have the gospel, and you don't either. Now, for those of you who are more uh, theologically interested in the room, I will say that all the basics are here. In this explanation, you actually have the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the deity and the humanity of Christ, or the hypostatic union, in this, you also have the vicarious blood atonement of Christ. In this, you also have implied the need for repentance as you recognize that sin is the problem. You have the need for faith because the only thing you can do if Christ is the one that fixed it is receive it. I mean, the basics of our soteriology and our theology are there in that statement, and you could unpack them if you want, but listen, we're keeping it simple. This is what you have to receive. This is what is of first importance. For those of you who are members of Faith Bible Church, may I ask you, when outsiders, friends, family, neighbors, whatever, evaluate your, your ministry, when they hear you talk about church, when they see you doing things to intentionally represent Jesus, what do they consider to be of first importance? Like, if they were evaluating you, what would they put on the at the top of your list and say, this is what this person is really concerned about? The subtle reminder for us is that more than anything else we could be known for as a church, or should be known for as a church, the gospel of Christ should be at the top. That message should characterize our ministry more than anything I talk about. For those of you who are visiting today, maybe you're a believer, you're following Jesus, you're just not committed to a church anywhere, I'm glad you're visiting today, I really am. In your hunt for a church, as you've been shopping around, as they say, what's at the top of your list? What do you look for? 
When you move into a new area and you're trying to find that church, what is that one thing that you just have to have? Nursery. (laughs) That's what people with five children say. Children's programs, great music, small groups, relevant teaching. Those are the things that typically work their way up to the top. And I'm not saying that they're not important, but this is what I am saying. On the authority of the Word of God, there is something even more important. And the question is, does this church highlight, underline, and circle the gospel of Jesus Christ first and foremost? Now, by the way, I'm not implying in that that we're the only church in town that does this. You just heard me pray for another church down the street. But I'm just telling you, as a, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ, that needs to be at the top of your list. Jesus Christ better be prominent in your church search. And then finally, that gets back to those of you who are visiting today, and maybe you're not sure where your relationship is with Jesus yet. Look, I, I don't know what you've picked up from us not just Faith Bible Church, but from anybody who claims to be a Christian about what's the most important. If in any way, shape, or form, you thought that it was conservative politics, please forgive us. Politics are not what makes Christianity prominent. And I, it, it burdens me when I take my once-a-month foray onto Facebook and see all the devastation that people are causing as Christians on behalf of things that really don't matter. Forgive us. That is not what the Bible says is the most important. Whatever we make a big deal out of, I'm sorry that we've done that, but here's what we should make a big deal of, and that is what I just said. Jesus Christ died and risen again for sin in accordance with the Scriptures. That is what matters to us. And that's what we're striving for. So we've seen what it does. We've seen what it is. We've looked at the the consequences of the gospel. We've looked at the contents of the gospel. But even though I could end there, Paul doesn't, and so I'm not. We also need to address why it can be believed. Why should we be so confident in this message? What's so credible about this? Anybody can make a claim that if you believe these things, you're going to enjoy eternal salvation and stability, right? Well, there's something unique here. There's credibility at stake in verses 5 through 11. Let me read it for you. Let your eyes rest on this. Notice how Paul brings in these witnesses to the message he's proclaiming. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to More than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. As I move into this final explanation, may I just forecast where we're headed here? For every one of us in the room, we need to remember that there's quite a difference between faith and foolishness. Is there not? If I were to entice you with beachfront property in Tennessee. That would be foolishness on your part. It would be. It doesn't correspond with the facts. It doesn't correspond with reality. But if I were to modify the offer a little bit, and I were to entice you with beachfront property on the outer banks of North Carolina... We may have a good deal. You would have to believe me on faith because it's not as if we're standing there on the property looking at it. But it does correspond with the facts. You understand North Carolina as a barrier island, that there's a big Atlantic Ocean beside it. It, You know that to be true. What Paul is inviting here is not foolishness itself, but faith. 
He's inviting faith. He's inviting that which corresponds to reality. And and his, his main verb here that he's using is this word appear. Notice how he kept repeating that. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Um, it doesn't take a Greek scholar to figure out that that is a verb of sight. Sight is the most credible form of testimony. Jesus appeared visibly to these people. He doesn't say, by the way, that these people felt Jesus in their hearts. Look, I, I'm a pastor. I get all kinds of weird statements from people telling me about what they felt. I can't verify anyone's feelings. I don't doubt that they felt that way, but anybody can say that they felt something. At the same time, it doesn't say that they heard the risen Christ. Like He spoke to them in a dream, or that He was speaking to them in their hearts. The verb And question is that of sight. They they saw him. This was eyewitness testimony. And I would say that the evidence here is both quantitative and qualitative. You have quality and quantity evidence. I mean, qualitatively, he says that he first appeared to Cephas or to Peter. Now, Peter was a guy well-known in the Mediterranean world at that time. Paul would not say to these Corinthians because Peter, by this point, has traveled the Mediterranean world, that this figurehead of the Christian faith had seen the risen Christ if he had not actually seen the risen Christ. He was a well-respected individual. So Paul cites Peter. He not only cites Cephas, but then he says the twelve. The twelve just is shorthand for the disciples. Now, for those of you Bible scholars out there, I know what you're thinking. Well, didn't Judas die? There's not twelve, there's eleven. Listen, the title of the band, if you will, was the twelve. It's kind of like the Jackson Five. The, the names switch out, but there's still five people represented. Look, the names may switch out with the disciples, but when he says the twelve, he is talking about these men who followed Jesus. They saw him. Not only the twelve, that's, so we've got quality witness, we've got quality and quantity witness. It continues. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I like that last note because he says, hey, look, if you really wanted to question me on this, some of them are dead indeed, but most of them are still alive. You could still ask them. He's inviting the question. You have quantity witnesses. And then he gets back to another quality witness. He mentions James. And what's the big deal about James? Why does he get on the list? Because James was the brother of Jesus. And according to John chapter 7, verses 2 through 9, James did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And then all of a sudden we get to the book of Acts, and the dude is an apostle, the leader of the church. Here's a guy who thought his brother was stark, raving lunatic, and then ultimately becomes the figurehead and poster boy of the Jesus movement. How does that happen? He saw the risen Christ. That is a qualitative witness. And then you have him showing up to the apostles. This is a shorthand term, could be for the 12 apostles, or it actually could, in some cases, be the missionaries, the officially sent ones of the church. Again, it is quantitative. We, we have something uh, broader. It, it was a group of people. And so, from all different facets, Paul wants them to remember that, yeah, there was evidence. And, and then, it doesn't get any better than personal eyewitness testimony, because Paul cites his own case, and he kind of goes on a little bit of a rabbit trail Because he recognizes that even though he was the least of the apostles, he came last in line, he still understands that his testimony counts too. Look at verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does he mean by that? He means like a premature birth. Now, my seeing of Jesus didn't happen at the normal time as everyone else's, but it still happened. And then Paul shows us humility. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now friends, um, I think it's fair to say that this witness wasn't just a neutral bystander. When someone says and admits, 
that they persecuted the church of God, that they were willing to kill people for this confession, it would be a big deal if the guy who's willing to kill them would actually come and make the same confession. Would it not? And that is exactly what happened in the case of Paul. He explains it further by saying, but, verse 10, by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. God made me something different. On the contrary, I I worked harder than any of them. He's saying, not only did I convert, but I became the most zealous advocate of this message. And then, lest that sound prideful, he adds, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I love it. And then he concludes, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is what he's getting to. Look, the the essential message of the Christian faith has been preached by a handful of different people, credible witnesses, all through this time, and they're all preaching the same thing. And guess what? You all believe the same thing, and you've got to keep holding on to this. Now, as the argument unfolds in chapter 15, he's really going to grab on to the resurrection and unpack its significance for them. But right now, what we need to rest in is the essential gospel itself. And he's saying, this is the same thing that has been professed by every credible eyewitness testimony or testifier of Jesus from the beginning. This is believable. Now, i got to say... I am not, I am not one of those, uh, you don't know me that well, but I just, I'll go ahead and show my hand here. I'm not one of the debates with your, could show up on a university campus somewhere and do like formal debates with your philosophy professor or whatever. I mean, I don't mind the conversation. I'm just saying like, I don't, I don't like travel and do that show. I don't, I don't give a lot of this kind of stuff very often in preaching, but I will say this. I am a historian, not formally, but I'm a fan of history. I love history. And I know a little bit about how it works. Have you ever considered, though, as we think about the credibility of the Christian gospel, how it stands up against the evidence of other sources of ancient Near Eastern interest? I'll just give you one example. Think of Alexander the Great. You know who he is, right? He's a guy that did something pretty incredible, something pretty unbelievable. By the age of 33, when he died, he would conquer the known world from Greece to India, everywhere in between, all the way down to Egypt. Unheard of. And I don't think that there's anyone in this room who would actually doubt whether or not Alexander the Great existed or whether he actually did what they said he did. But you want to know what's interesting? We have no records of Alexander the Great from his time period. We don't even have any from the time after his time period. The the first thing that we have is two fragments around 100 years after he supposedly lived and died. And then everything else we get about Alexander the Great comes from three to 500 years later. And nobody's pitching a fit that Alexander the Great never did what he said he did. Could it be, friend, that the problem is not a lack of evidence, but the problem is that sin has distorted your heart and caused you to misinterpret the facts? Could it be a sin problem and not an intellectual problem? This is the biblical answer. This is truth as plain as day. Look, dear believer who proclaims the gospel message, I am not telling you to go off on some apologetic rampage on your unbelieving friends. You do not need that. It is not helpful. I'm going to save you a lot of time and money. But let me tell you what you do need to do. Proclaim the gospel boldly. The facts are on your side. The only reason, pastorally, I would ever share that kind of information is not to convince the lost. I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The reason I would share this is because I want you who already believe to understand that the facts are there to back you up. This is not foolishness. Beachside property in Tennessee, it is faith. It is an ocean on the side of the Carolinas. It is fact, and it is something that we believe, and it is something that we advance.
I was recently told of an African Buddhist who converted to Christianity. And needless to say, in that culture, it caused quite a stir. People were more prominent about their religion. And so he was asked then, how or why uh, did you convert from Buddhism to Christianity? And he answered with this hypothetical situation. He says, I want you to imagine that you're going for a walk and you come across a fork in the road. And at the two sides of the fork are two men, one dead and one alive. Whose directions do you follow? It's a good question. And I ask it to you all. Who, who do you follow? What gospel, what message of salvation do you choose to believe? Which one do you receive? Now, before you answer, brief recap. What's being promised here is that this gospel will provide stability and salvation for everyone who receives it. Its contents include Christ crucified and risen again according to the Scriptures. Listen to this. For our sins. And furthermore, it is credible on account of qualitative and quantitative eyewitnesses. With that, we're at the fork in the road. And where do you go? Do you receive this message? Or do you keep following down the path of destruction? For those of you who are already journeying down that road, praise God for that. Listen, my simple admonition to you is not that you would receive this truth. You've done that. But resound, relay this truth to others. And do it simply. Kiss. <laughs> Keep it simple. Saved people. I won't call you stupid. Listen, sometimes we do complicate this too much. I know there's this temptation to think you've got to have some type of Bible college degree or go to seminary or receive some form of special training to pass this along. No, this is a basic, simple message. God designed it that way. And we're fully expected and invited to share it with others. Let's pray.